Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're pleased to welcome back Dr. Timothy Chow. We'll be talking with Dr. Chow about his recently released trilogy on cloud computing. We'll talk about how cloud computing is enabling a new breed of software applications, how that's impacting the world of software development, and why it's important to understand that service is the delivery of information that's personal and relevant to you. Dr. Timothy Chow is an author, cloud computing expert, and lecturer at Stanford University. Between 1999 and 2005, Dr. Chow served as president of Oracle On Demand, the fastest growing business inside Oracle during that time. He currently serves on the board of two application cloud service companies, Burstorm and CloudBook which is the publisher of his series on cloud computing. Dr. Chow is also the author of The End of Software, Transforming Your Business for the On-Demand Future. His thoughts have been cited in popular publications like Forbes, The New York Times, NPR, Business Week, and The Economist. Dr. Chow joined us for the 24th episode of The Innovation Engine in July of last year, and we're excited to have him back with us along with Vince Vasquez of CloudBook. Vince brings over 25 years of experience at companies including Sun, HP, and Cray Research. Most recently, he ran Sun's Software as a Service business, which morphed into early work in Sun's cloud efforts. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Chow, and welcome to the podcast, Vince. (laughs) Thank you, Will. (laughs) Thank you. All right, so Dr. Chow, you've been busy since we last spoke. As I mentioned in the introduction, you just released a trilogy on cloud computing through CloudBook, Vince's company. Can you give listeners a little bit of background on what the three books cover? Yeah, so the three books are, um, the first book is focused on fundamentals, and it's something I discovered both by, you know, spending time with my Stanford students as well as, you know, CIOs and and uh, tech leaders in industry that we uh, we really need to have a uh, let's call it a simple conversation around uh, what the fundamentals are of cloud computing. Uh, the second thing is on what I call operational efficiency. So we talk a little bit about well, what does it mean to move to the cloud? <laughs> what is the current state of the cloud with lots of case studies? And then really focus on kind of the we'll call it the operational efficiency issues, meaning. Uh, how does a cloud service enable you to manage security, availability, performance, and change better than, let's call it the old traditional way? And then the third book is called Transformation, and it really highlights both transformation of the tech industry itself, so whether that's hardware providers or the hardware channel or ISVs, as well as industry transformation. So what does this mean to healthcare? financial services, nonprofits, et cetera. So those are the three books. Okay, great. And before we get our hands dirty talking about the content of each of those books, let me ask you about the format for the books, Vince. I think it's safe to say they're not your average book. You've gotten a lot of great accolades from business leaders throughout the country and in various different industries. What are the component parts of each of the three quote-unquote books? Yeah, so uh, they're done in what we call a cloud book format. Um, and we would say, you know, you start with physical books, which have a lot of limitations, they're two-dimensional, static, et cetera. And then, you know, the industry went to e-books, 
which was definitely a step forward, but you know, they have limitations as well. And um, so we went in and said, well, let's let's take eBooks the next step and create a cloud book. And basically within a cloud book still takes the book structure. We have chapters, table contents typically, et cetera. But each chapter is a very rich experience. Because we know, for instance, a lot of people rather learn by watching. So it's a video first. Um, well entrenched with lots of videos it has but some people learn better by reading so there's text um, but you also want to not only be able to learn but it, teach others the full photo of, of pictures slide images if you will you can have pdfs uh, web links you can have spam it's a very rich environment per chapter so if you get one of uh, timothy's cloud books um, for every chapter you'll be able to listen to timothy give the talk or the lecture of the content for that chapter You'll be able to read what he has to say, and you'll have the slide images or pictures so you can teach others. Because not only do we want to learn, but we want to be able to teach as well. So the cloud book um, allows you to not only learn what he has to say, and then also teach others. A second element is we really teach story, or treat story like software. And um, so when you buy a cloud book, um, you also get updates. So Timothy makes changes, adds new chapters. It's a subscription to the story. Any bug fixes, all that you get. So you not you don't get a physical. I'm buying the book at this point in time. You actually get a subscription to what Timothy has to say. So he evolves his story, his knowledge around cloud computing. The story of the books you buy will also evolve, and you'll be able to continue to learn with Timothy. Okay, great. So Toby Redshaw, the former CIO of American Express, said it's monumental, awesome. Also love the format. It's way cool. Uh, Dennis uh, Walchak, sorry if I butcher your last name, Dennis Enterprise Account Exec at Box, says it should be required reading for our entire sales organization. So a great format. Um, and, and let's move away from the format and on into the content. So Dr. Chow, in the first book, which is called Fundamentals, you talk about instances where cloud computing has created opportunities for high-growth applications like the Guilt Group. And for companies that need to deal with aperiodic bursting and periodic bursting. So for folks out there that may not be super technical, what does cloud computing enable for companies that are in, in one of these three situations? Boy, well, I, I, I can see you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, that would be a little bit more specific. Uh, what uh, you're talking about is really compute and storage cloud services as opposed to application cloud services. And we make a big deal out of that in the book and in the cloud computing framework. So there's actually an entire chapter devoted to applications, to software development cloud services, to uh, data center cloud services, uh, to operations management cloud services, and you are touching on the chapter uh, having to do with compute and storage cloud services. And so, in that chapter, uh, I do talk about the fact that uh, the major innovation that Amazon brought was an innovation of business model, this idea that you could buy a computer for 12 cents for an hour and give it back. And I said, look, that really allows you to do things you couldn't do before. And um, both, and, and that's where it comes into the bursting conversation so as an example, uh, one of the things uh, I talk about is there is an application of wanting to test um, the, uh, the uh, websites, uh, particularly around Super Bowl Sunday-oriented websites. So 
those sorts of applications uh, can take advantage of the idea that I'm going to use thousands of computers to pound a particular website um, for, you know, for an hour, a day, et cetera, and then shut it all down. Where I could have always done that technically years ago. Uh, I would have bought thousands of servers and put them in New York, San Francisco, Dallas, et cetera, but the cost would have been enormous, right? So the point that's being made there is there a number of different classes of applications, and I outlined four different classes, including one that includes the guilt group, and uh, talk about why it is that these things were, we'll call them technologically always possible, but only economically possible today. Okay, and let me ask you about another company you mentioned, GitHub. You talk about GitHub in a chapter on software development cloud services, and you cite an interesting stat in the book. The first million code repositories on GitHub were created in less than four years, and the last million took only 48 days. So those numbers are also from 2013. I imagine the, the last million repositories have happened much faster than 48 days. How are collaboration tools like GitHub changing the way software has traditionally been developed and launched? Yeah, um, I, I think what you're now starting to see in various different forms is what people have historically referred to as the network effect. I mean, we've seen that in eBay, Facebook, Airbnb on the consumer side, right, where um, let's call it there's enough producers of a product, there's enough consumers of a product, and there's enough product, and you hit this tipping point where growth goes nonlinear, as you just cited in the case of GitHub. So I think in the world of software development, um, you know, it's probably no news to any software developer that GitHub has become, uh, in essence, your resume, right? Um, I just uh, helped one of my Stanford kids start the first hackathon at Stanford. And, uh, you know, part of the qualification process, they had 2,500 people apply to be part of the hackathon, and part of the qualification process was please submit your GitHub. So. I don't think it takes, uh, you know, it, it, we have reached that tipping point in the case of GitHub that every software developer at this stage, that is part of how they show you how they exhibit their, the skills that they have and, uh, by the way, how we begin to bring new hunks of software into production um, and, you know, that, quote, network effect. There's enough product, software developer, uh, you know, let's call it code, there's enough producers of that, software developers, and there's enough consumers of that, other software developers. And so what we've seen with, we'll call it Pez dispensers at eBay or, you know, rooms at Airbnb, I think you're seeing that with GitHub right now. Okay, so, so let me ask you about a provocative statement that you make in the second book, and it's this. Performance is a feature. So can you elaborate on that thought a little bit and talk about what it means? Yeah, well, I'm going to give you an A in this class. You actually read the book. So, uh, <laughs> it was it was riveting. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. This is the next Harry Potter, but thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I make the point: performance is a feature, um, and this is not a lecture, a, a conversation directed at uh, you know my friends in the consumer internet space. They already realize this. Uh, it's really to the guys operating in the enterprise software space. So um, 
I think in enterprise software, we have constantly managed uh, our R&D resource based on features, right? Whether that's, you know, database features or application features or middleware features. And we classically have thought of the management of that software as well. That's what those guys do over there, the admin guys. And um, so in an effort to try to get people to rethink this, uh, I, uh, I reference a paper that the guys at Google wrote several years ago called Performance as a Feature. And um, I said, well, if you think about it, right, uh, how much has Google changed uh, as an application from, you know, the late 90s? I mean, okay, today they have a little shamrock, right, on the page. It's nothing different, right? I mean, it's just a little box that you type in a, a, a word or phrase. So you look at that and you go, well, so why do they have all those engineers over there, right? I mean, the function is identical, right? And, and you come to the realization that, well, what are all those engineers doing over there? Those engineers are engineering how I make search higher performance, higher security, higher availability, et cetera. So they are treating performance as a feature, and you can see this. People probably don't know that, notice this anymore, but every search you do, you can look in the upper right-hand corner, and you can see how many you know, milliseconds it took to execute that search. By the way, you know that in the back room, they've got computers analyzing that, trying to figure out well, how I can take that performance better and better and better. And now in the spirit of most analogies, I always say to people, well, if you think, you know, a, a car is four wheels and a steering, four, four tires and a steering wheel, then a Volkswagen and a Ferrari are identical. <laughs> the answer to that, no, they're not. At a minimum, right, they have very different performance characteristics, right? And I think as we move into the world, as many enterprise companies move into this new world of delivering as cloud service, they will similarly have experts in performance, security, and availability management and be prioritizing features in those areas just as we've seen in the, we'll call it the functional side. So you, you talk about in the book some of the new innovations that you think will see transform the software business. What are some of those new innovations that you see coming down the pipeline? Well, I think the, the, the transformation is we're, we're just at the beginning of what is becoming possible. Um, so let me highlight a few things. A few years ago, I, uh, I was first in Beijing, and uh, my friends at Amazon were generous enough, and they gave me uh, $3,000 worth of uh, AWS time. So I showed up in class, and I said, here, we got $3,000 worth of computer time. And it uh, turns out at that point in time, that was a small server in, you know, Northern California, Virginia, uh, for about two and a half years, right? That's what you would get for $3,000. Uh, and so they all looked at me and kind of yawned, right? Because, like, so what? I can get a server in Beijing for, you know, for, three, for, for as long as I want, right? And uh, so I said, or $3,000 would buy you 10,000 servers for 30 minutes. Now, suddenly, you know, they, they, and I think most people, start to think, well, what would I do with 10,000 servers for 30 minutes? And, and I think it is in that that we're going to make major shifts in a new generation of applications. 
because we now have that capability to do that in a in an economically very different model than the world we came from. That's why when I talk to people about cloud computing, I think a lot of people want to talk about, well, how do I move my mainframe into the cloud, or you know, how do I move this client? So when I look at them, I go, you know, we all should learn a lesson. Last time around in the move to client server, the winner was not somebody that took an old AS400 application or a mainframe application and moved it to client server. The winner was somebody who came up with totally new applications that you could only execute in this economic model, right? And those are the names we all think of as the, you know, the old men of the industry today, right? The Oracle SAPs, uh, et cetera, of the world. I think the next step of this is new generations of applications which are taking advantage of this very different economic model to be able to do things that we have never been able to do before. And so you might ask, well, what would those things look like? And I'll just tease this for a second. Um, I do a lot of talks around the world to you know, uh, pretty major uh, corporations. And one of the things I get people to think about is I go, look, the United States economy is 80 percent, 80 to 90 percent a service economy, meaning we don't manufacture a lot. We don't make a lot of money growing stuff, meaning not agriculture, not manufacturing. Uh, by the way, China's at 55 percent. Uh, Mexico's actually at 70 percent, a service economy. So that should lead people to ask the question, what the hell is a service economy, right? And and I would say, well, it's not answering the phone nicely from Bangalore. You know, it's not flipping burgers at In-N-Out, since I live in California, right? That's not service, right? Service is the delivery of information personal and relevant to you. Service, delivery of information personal and relevant to you. You know, I walk down to the concierge of the hotel, and I'm saying, hey, I'd really love to go to a, a cheap, Sichuan restaurant that I can walk to and he sends me there or I walk into my doctor's office and she says, hey, based on your genome, right, uh, and your lifestyle, we need to put you on Lipitor, right? Uh, those are all examples of service. I will tell you that every consumer internet company, what I just said, they go, yeah, they're yawning, right? Because what are they doing, right? Whether that's an Amazon page that's trying to show you people like you bought this book today or a Facebook ad or a Google ad in your Gmail, et cetera. They are trying to deliver information personal and relevant to you. I will tell you that in healthcare, financial service, nonprofits, across all these other industries, we have not done that yet. Just log into your favorite banking website just to pick on my banking friends, and all you will see is a giant shopping cart to move money from savings to checking, right? Uh, buy a stock, sell a bond, et cetera. It's just a big shopping cart. There is no information personal and relevant to you. Now, the gap right now is not technology. There is a crap load, that's a technical term, a crap load of technology out there. It's the inability to marry domain expertise in all these areas with technology that has been born in the consumer internet. So when people use the phrase consumerization of IT and want to talk about whether or not they should, you know, allow Facebook at work, I think that's like a, yeah, okay, fine, you know, have that conversation. 
that's not the real conversation. The real conversation is how do I take these technologies, these economic models which have been applied in the consumer internet and now apply them to the world of financial services, nonprofits, healthcare, et cetera. And that represents enormous transformational opportunity for we'll call them either existing software companies or as I would hypothesize, many, many, many new enterprise software companies. So last time you were here, we, we talked about that concept that service is the delivery of information that's personal and relevant to you. Have, since we spoke last, have you come across anybody that you know is, is really blowing you away with the kinds of information they're able to deliver to you? And it's okay if the answer is no, because that just means there's opportunity for somebody else to come and do it. I'd tell you the answer is no. I think we are so still at the early stages of this. Um, part of, uh, I actually work with a, a, um, an incubator accelerator called Alchemist that's uh, connected to Stanford. Part of this is because we're trying to get, you know, the young people out there interested in, in the challenges of enterprise, you know, of the enterprise, whether that's a utility company, uh, a re, you know, a, um, a real estate company or whatever, and for them to begin to understand those challenges and problems and then the application of this next generation of technology, I think encouraging uh, that to start to happen and the innovation that can happen because of that, that's really where we are right now. Because, you know, as we all could guess, uh, most of the new apps that have been built in the past 10 years have to do with dating, eating, <laughs> and bike stuff, right? Because if I'm 25, I know a lot about buying stuff, eating, and dating, right? Yes, I'm sure so, your college students know a lot about it. Yeah, so I, I think it's that next step we need to take, which is, hey, look, guys, there's a ton of these questions sitting out there, uh, and and can we now influence, um, you know, let's call it the next generation to work on these problems with a new uh, technology stack, and with a new economic model. And I'm very optimistic, I mean, that we're going to see this. So so let me go off script a little bit and ask you a question. Mobile seems to be a, a technology, if, if you want to call it a technology, that has kind of dominated our lives or come to dominate our lives over the, cor over the course of the last, let's call it a decade. Do you, do you think AI is kind of like the next quote-unquote technology that will really enable this kind of delivery of information that's personal and relevant to to us? Yeah, you know, AI, as, uh, as you pointed out, I think it's, uh, we're back, I, I'm, I have the advantage of being an old guy. I've seen this cycle happen once before when uh, the, uh, this was funny to think about, the Japanese were going to build what was called the fifth generation of very smart computers and going to dominate the world. I mean, go back. Young people can go back and look in Google and see the references to this. Um, so I think AI is obviously making a resurgence, at least as a word. Um, uh, whether that's you know AI as AI or machine learning or uh, you know autonomous uh, operation. I mean, there's a lot of these words sitting out there. I I, I do think that because of the increasing amount of information. So I, you know, I do a little work with my friends at General Electric and, you know, this whole Internet of Things I've become very versed in. Uh, there isn't anybody out there, in fact, 
you know, Keurig coffee pots are getting instrumented, right? So um, we're, because why? I mean, the cost to do that is vanishingly small. Um, you know, we're going through a, a, a shift to LED lighting. Well, the interesting thing about that shift is that it's, it's probably once in a generation right now, because once you put that LED light in, it's not going out for a while, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So people are going, well, if I'm going to put that LED light in and it's got power, why don't I instrument the hell out of that light bulb, right? It's location, you know, uh, temperature, vibrate, I mean, all this stuff, right? So this notion that we're headed into a heavily instrumented world, I think that's not new news to people. I think the question of what do we do with that data, what do we do with that information is the giant, I mean, I'm saying it yet another way, right? And how do we apply these technologies, these, and technology can be software technology, algorithm technology, et cetera, to doing new things. Well, that's, you know, obviously improving whatever the maintenance schedule is on a windmill, fine. Or whether that's, you know, let's call it making our lives a little simpler, right? It could be that. I mean, we're, we, we're, we're in an age right now where I think the enabling technologies are all there, right? What what we're waiting for is creativity. What we're waiting for is innovation. And I think in that, at least I'll say, I think humans, we're still probably going to be better at doing that than computers. Um, and we will use increasingly sophisticated technology that some people are going to call artificial intelligence, et cetera, to go do that. But I think the the, the thing I would say to your listeners is, you know, our gap is innovation. Our gap is creativity, right? And uh, we've got the parts. We've got the stuff. I, I just uh, go back to, I, I was talking a little bit earlier about this hackathon. I was just amazed. I mean, there were 500 kids there, you know, about half of them were Stanford kids, half were, you know, from rest of California, Berkeley, USC, UCLA, and then half from rest of U.S., you know, UVA, uh, Brown, MIT, et cetera. And um, they arrived and they, for 36 hours. They were only there for 36 hours. They were given a lot of toys, what I call toys. So the toys were, you know, APIs to direct TV set-top boxes, which I had no idea existed. Uh, they were given, you know, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and, you know, stepper motors <clears throat> and uh, motion detectors and ocular rifts and all this toys, right, and said, here, Go build something that you, you know, would think is interesting. I was just amazed at what the winning thing, and the judges were even kind of stunned by this, is two guys built a robot arm which followed your arm. So I don't I don't understand the sensor technology that was used there, but when you moved your arm, the, the robot moved its arm. When you reached down to pick something up, it reached down to pick something up. They freaking literally built this in 36 hours. I mean, everybody's like, whoa, right? So... I just see enormous untapped creativity um, in this in the space, and we we are so at the early piece of this in my mind. Okay, nice. So, Vince, you've been waiting patiently. We have on the line uh, a person who is creating and who has created an innovative product powered by the cloud. Can you talk a little bit about the long-term plan for CloudBook, and maybe also about what other kinds of books you're publishing there? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if there are authors out there who want to get their um, book published, 
we're definitely in the market to, um, to attract new authors. But the, the big, big difference between a cloud book and a regular book is that, I mean, and often what keeps people that are really smart that have, say, a lot of uh, presentations and it's all in their head is that they're typically not writers or they won't be able to sit down and write a 200-page book or whatnot. In the cloud book format, we have a process where we basically just um, record you giving your presentation, um, and then from there we can create the text, we create the visuals, um, we create the videos, and all that to give you your own cloud book, um, which we will then also put into physical book and kind of the old school um, e-book, uh, physical book world. Um, so we just need um, authors, people that have a story to tell, um, and we take it from there. Okay, nice. And and in addition to Dr. Chow's book, any other books that are that you've published that you would point people toward? Uh, absolutely. We have a, a broad range of books and um, more coming on daily. So we have books on negotiation, about ERP, uh, public speaking, um, a lot of a lot around cloud. So um, we do have a focus typically around kind of uh, the cloud services. So whether to be application services down through. Um, Compute and storage and network data center, so forth. But what we find is that there's just a lot of stories out there. So whether it's around negotiation or relationships or parenting or whatnot, I think what you'll find is once you get into a cloud book, you'll see that that's really the way we should learn. I mean, we shouldn't really be in a, stuck in a physical world only. And even in ebooks, we shouldn't be stuck where you can only have so much video embedded because otherwise it gets too big. Um, you'll find as you go into cloud books, you'll say, okay, now I can, I'll, I'll give you a little story. I took a, a conflict resolution seminar, the three-day seminar. I was having a, a relatively conflicted relationship, and I had this wonderful seminar, and I was really excited, and they gave me this workbook to go home with. So I came home, I went to a Pete's Coffee with my uh, my girlfriend, and I said, hey, I really want to teach you about this conflict resolution that I learned because I think it could help us. And then I was such a bad teacher because I sat there and listened to the lecture for three days and I absorbed only so much, but I really couldn't teach her. And so the content really just stayed with me. In the cloud book world, I would have taken that lecture um, with me. I would have been able to sit with my, my companion here and she could have learned what I learned. She could read it. We could discuss it. I could teach her so we could get on the same page. And in fact, in fact, that summer seminar is going to become a cloud book in the next couple of months. So there's a broad range of topics, just wherever you want to learn and, and want to educate others. Okay, great. So if you'd like to check out Dr. Timothy Chow's book on CloudBook, you can go to cloudbookinc.com. You can also browse other titles there. Uh, we're running a little low on time, Dr. Chow. Any parting words of wisdom? Any parting words of wisdom for our listeners out there listening? My only parting world of wisdom is, uh, you know, get to learning all what's happening in the new world and get to innovating. That's my only comment. Okay, nice. Well, Dr. Chow, uh, a fellow old North Stater, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Good luck to your Wolfpack in the uh, NCAA tournament that kicks off on Thursday. Tough draw with Villanova is your one seed, but I hope you make it uh, at least into the Sweet 16, which is around the time this podcast will go live. Oh, amen. Amen. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Timothy Chow, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Timothy Chow. That's C H O U. You can also buy his cloud computing trilogy at cloudbookinc.com, the company founded by Vince Vasquez. Thanks very much to Dr. Timothy Chow and Vince Vasquez for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. 
don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have two more guests on the podcast, Jane McDonald and Trevor Noblick of the Online News Association. We'll be talking with the two of them about the future of media, how technology is changing the way we consume and create the news, what emerging technologies and platforms mean for traditional news organizations, and what the future holds for podcasting as a medium. Thanks once again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.